Hey, listeners, Brooke and I want to let you know that we are teaching an online class coming up on June 12th. It's called Five Things I've Learned About What It Takes to Finish a Book. They wouldn't let us call it Five Things We've Learned About What It Takes to Finish a Book. So part of the class will be sorting out whose lessons you're learning, but we'll try to make that part fun and easy. That's right, Grant. We had to make that work for this incredible series, Five Things I've Learned, and I am excited about it because it's the first time we will have ever taught together. And what it takes to finish a book is going to cover a lot of ground. Like our show, it's going to have some how-to and some inspiration, and it's also a great space to connect with other writers and people who care about writing and books. Yeah. And, you know, if we haven't learn some vital lessons about how to finish a book at this point, you know, we should call it quits, right? We've talked to all of these experts and we have all this wisdom from ourselves of the books we've started. So other than that deep wisdom of how to write and finish a book, Brooke, why do you think people should register other than low price of $40? Yeah, well, I know we're all tired of Zooming, but I also love the intimacy of these Zoom spaces where we're there together live. And I've been looking at our notes and we've got some really fabulous stuff. So if this is your year to finish a book, I can promise at least one really meaningful takeaway that will help you over the finish line. I don't know, Grant, I wish we had a giveaway uh, or maybe that you were Oprah and you could give everyone in the Zoom room a tea set or their very own Alexa or something. Maybe Oprah will make a special appearance on the five things. But short <laughs> of that, we do have something broken. There's that video of us on the registration page. Oh, right. And you still have your pandemic beard. So, yes, that is something that people can go look at. So yes, rush to the registration page for the free video and um, a sneak peek at my sort of pandemic beard. And if you are so moved, maybe you'll sign up for the whole shebang. The URL is crazy long, so we'll put it in the show notes for you, or you can Google five things Grant and Brooke and see what comes up. That's right. Google five things Grant and Brooke. We think it's only going to go one place and hope to see you all on June 12th at 1 p.m. Pacific, 4 p.m. Eastern. Hello, deadline drivers, genreists, category writers, and advocates of the popular form. I am Brooke Warner, and I am here with my co-host, Grant Faulkner, and this is another episode of Right Minded in which we're reaching into genre fiction and yet another corner of the world of fiction that we have somehow managed not yet to touch in our nearly three years of doing this show, Grant, and that is crime fiction. Uh Uh-oh. We haven't touched it. <laughs> we somehow managed to leave it off of the books here, but we're picking it back up with today's guest, Tracy Clark. Uh, and it's kind of incredible when you start to dig into the many layers of fiction and all of these offshoots that exist. And so for those listeners who might not know what genre fiction includes, it's crime and thrillers, sci-fi, romance, uh, fantasy, horror, mystery, urban fiction, and even Westerns. Uh, some people call this category fiction. And it is this giant segment of the book publishing industry. Also, interestingly, it tends to get a bit of the short shrift because it's popular as opposed to literary. And there's actually been a lot written about genre wars. uh, And that's because writers of genre fiction don't get the same sort of literary accolades as their literary counterparts in terms of reviews and awards. And that extends, importantly, to advances and sales strategies. 
And so one critique of this space has to do with the genre divide being both racist and classist. And our friend Aya de Leon, who is a local author and activist, and she's the author of the Justice Hustlers series, she's written quite a few articles on this subject. And she makes really interesting points about how publishers don't know how to market to the readers of certain kinds of genre books. And so then it's a self-propagating problem. And so you have certain imprints, and I do want to give a shout out to Kensington, for instance, because she is the publisher of today's guest, Tracy, and they're dominating the space in certain kinds of genres and then doing it really well, especially crime and urban fiction. But Grant, it just got me thinking like the whole industry is so siloed and segmented. And so it's not like this is anything new, but it is really eye-opening to start to consider the broader cultural impacts on what we read and how we have judgments about what other people read in terms of what's highbrow, lowbrow, educated or crass, sophisticated or pedestrian. And that how, you know, like these preconceived boxes really maybe just need to be blown up. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm just imagining walking into a bookstore with these categories, like go to the sophistication section <laughs> or the pedestrian section. You know, it almost feels like that. And I'm not a publishing insider, so I don't know the numbers, but I remember Hugh Howey, the author of Wool and an NaNoWriMo writer. And he said that genre fiction, you know, sells way more than literary fiction. And then, in fact... Genre fiction essentially supports or funds literary fiction in a way, which I thought was a really interesting point. Again, I'm not sure if that's true, but I think it's interesting to think about. And um, I definitely know that plenty of wonderful, talented writers write genre fiction every year because most novels written in NaNoWriMo fit into one of those genre categories you listed. And I also know that these novels can certainly be as meaningful and as well-written as a literary novel. So... I personally don't make judgments of quality in terms of a book's category. And I think that we've divided these books up into odd categories because, you know, literary fiction is supposedly written in an, you know, kind of elite art for art's sake mode, whereas genre fiction is viewed as more commercially driven. And literary fiction is seen as exploring and revealing, you know, the existential reality of our lives, whereas genre fiction is seen as more, you know, in the categories of entertainment and escape. Um, this is, you know, as if literary fiction can't offer its own form of entertainment and escape, and as if genre fiction can't help us understand our lives in the real world. You know, I just think these categories are messed up to begin with. <laughs> right. I, I mean, it's interesting the way that the publishing industry works in terms of different stigmas. I mean, certainly we've talked about that in terms of publishing models. And so I'm intimately familiar with that being the publisher of a hybrid press. And so there's all these people in the world of publishing who are underdogs in a way. Uh, Ursula Le Guin actually wrote that genre fiction has always been the ghetto of literature. That's a paraphrase, mm -hmm. but still it's, completely the case. And then they, you know, the authors of these genres oftentimes are put in a position of feeling like they need to advocate for themselves. And Tracy's going to talk to us about uh, crime writers of color. And there's also sisters in crime, you know, these are just these different groups that pop up. And I think, you know, well, I, I know the reason is because you feel like you need to band together if you're an underdog. And so in some ways, the stigma in very all these various places of the industry actually end up building these super incredible communities, which I think is just a cool offshoot, even if it comes from perhaps a initially negative space. Uh, but I also wanted to give a little bit of 
education, I guess, just for the fact of uh, popular fiction being able to be traced back to pulp magazines of the early 20th century. Uh, And they were largely weird and scandalous, kind of like today's tabloids. And so they were seen as a bit lowbrow. I mean, pulp fiction, right? Uh, But also super consumable. You know, they'd be fast paced. And it just got me thinking that it's really no different than me at night being like, do I want to read a book? Or do I want to just watch some mindless, and I say that in a good way, series that I love, because I kind of just want to veg out. And sometimes I think that's the appeal of popular fiction, you know, that you can just really read it without having to think too much. It's super enjoyable. And to Hugh Howey's point, you know, maybe that's why they sell so much better than literary fiction, which makes you work so hard. Yeah. And that's a perfectly good reason to write and read is just for entertainment and pleasure and escape. I always like to remind people doesn't have to be, you know, overly existentially angstful. And I think the perfect analogy of the pulp magazine stories that you mentioned um, of the early 20th century and definitely going before the pulp magazine stories, there was serialized fiction in the, in the 19th century that was really popular. And those are exactly like, I think, today's Netflix shows. And it's interesting to think about how serialized fiction relies on a structure to keep you reading. You know, there's always a hook or cliffhanger at the end of the show. And TV shows are constructed this way so that people will stay tuned during commercials. And then, you know, Netflix shows are constructed this way for you to binge watch. But I think one question, I mean, it's definitely pleasurable, as you mentioned, Brooke. But, but you know, I kind of also want to add a question in there is like, is fast pacing and a riveting plot anti-intellectual unto itself? Or does such an action-packed story, you know, ruin those uh, insights into our lives that were you know, stories provide? And I was thinking about this, and maybe we should go back to you know, the classics of Western literature themselves to answer that question. You know, think about the Iliad and the Odyssey, which just happened to be two action-packed fantasy dramas for the answers to that question. Yeah, I mean, it's a fascinating conversation to have because that question of pacing, I mean, I'm hoping that when I'm reading a good story that the pacing is good. And then there's commercial fiction. I think the industry, of course, is a little bit more obsessed with categories than readers Mm -hmm. because I just don't think readers give it too much thought. Uh, But yeah, literary fiction is almost like you can get some gold stars for having read all of these books. You know, you could be seen as particularly sophisticated if you You've read, you know, I was thinking how in college I read so many of these books, like Their Eyes Were Watching God and Don Quixote and Anna Karenina and the Brothers Karamazov. And they were kind of like gold stars that I was placing on my reading resume somehow. And I think about people who consume genre fiction. I mean, romance readers and crime readers and urban fiction readers are some of the most voracious readers that exist, frankly. And it's why I think they love ebooks. We're going to ask Tracy about that a little bit later, not only because you can fit hundreds of ebooks in your Kindle, but also because they're less expensive. That's another big thing. I mean, of course, you have the library and like all kinds of different ways to get books. But yeah, I, I actually admire readers who are voracious readers as much as I admire readers who have read all of these fancy books that are on some college curriculum. Yeah, Brooke, there's a lot of truth in that. And while you were speaking, I was reflecting on my own identity as a literary fiction writer. 
And, uh, you know, as an English major, all of my lit classes were focused exclusively on literary fiction or the classics and, you know, what was deemed worthy of being in the literary canon. So very narrow and very kind of elite uh, literature. And when I was getting my MFA, it was really interesting because MFA programs have historically been so focused on literary fiction to the point that, that many of them, uh, especially in the past, did not allow genre fiction at all. I think some of them have loosened up a little bit and then some actually focus on genre. But the MFA programs that focus on genre, they do so because genre writers don't find a home or a place for themselves in traditional MFA programs. And that's because these programs are nested within you know, English academic programs, which feel, you know, that literary fiction is the better way to write. So anyway, it's, it's interesting to me how there are a lot of almost political factors going on um, that influence the commercial factors that publishers publish by, but also the way that people are taught to read and write. And, and I know that I certainly read and wrote more genre fiction before I truly engaged with academic institutions. So it's interesting how they kind of create a pathway for ourselves and our identities. Yeah. And it's your, everything that you're saying is just making me think about the genre wars. And, and if people haven't ever given any thought to that, it's actually quite interesting to go and do a little bit of reading about what that all means. You know, I was talking about what I read in college and how important that seemed to me to just be a literary citizen of the world. And that was when I started thinking about writing and publishing and my whole orientation was toward literary works. But of course, when I was a kid, I could read anything I wanted. And I have talked about how much of a Dean R. Kuntz fan I was when I was in junior high and high school. And, and then there's this push to move away from that. And then I think if you are a really voracious reader, or if you just love to read for pleasure, then oftentimes you'll come back to genre fiction. But I think we get kind of pushed into these corners. Certainly some people where they're like, oh, well, I just don't read genre fiction. And then that reiterates this problem of publishers not knowing how to find readers. Because the notion that the, the readers aren't out there is like, completely ridiculous, right? So it, it's it's fascinating to think about. And I'm just really glad that we're talking about crime fiction. It's like this whole wide world. And I can't think of a better guest than Tracy. I think that you're all going to love her very regimented way of thinking about how she writes and uh, the way that she writes. She gets into process. And of course, we hope that you'll check out her books and other series. And uh, yeah, it's super fascinating. So Thanks, Grant. And let's hear what Tracy has to say about some of this stuff and more after a very short break. Welcome back, everybody. Tracy Clark is our guest today, and she is the Sue Grafton Memorial Award-winning author of the highly acclaimed Chicago Mystery Series, featuring hard-driving Black ex-homicide cop-turned-PI Cassandra Rains. In Runner, Cass searches for a runaway teen and unearths a twisted world full of misdirection and lies. Tracy is also an Anthony and Lefty Award finalist, and her books have been shortlisted for the American Library Association's RUSA Readings List, named a Crimes Read Best New PI Book of 2018, 
and all kinds of other awards, Tracy, actually, I was just loving this. And, and Runner is the fourth book in her series. A native Chicagoan, she works as an editor in the newspaper industry. She's a board member at large of Sisters in Crime, Chicagoland, and a member of Thriller Writers, Mystery Writers of America Midwest, for which you're also a board member. And she's also currently a finalist at the Left Coast Crime Fiction Lefty Award for Best Mystery of the Year. Holy goodness, that's a lot of stuff. So welcome. And thank you so much for being with us on Right Minded, Tracy. Thrilled to have you. I'm glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, let's start with your protagonist, Cass, because uh, she breaks some crime tropes and in a very good way. She has her share of problems and you avoid a lot of stereotypes and cliches in the rendering of her character. Uh, I want to note that you start her from this pretty low place in book one and then build her up from there. And your readers clearly relate to her. I spent a lot of time reading reviews of your work and how much people love Cass. So did you think about breaking the mold with her or was it the opposite in that you were just simply trying to give your books a more real vibe with a relatable leading character? Um, a little bit of both, I think. Um, when I started out, I knew that I wanted to write in this genre and I sort of spent most of my formative years sort of reading in that genre, P.I. stories, uh, Chandler, Hammett. Um, so I knew what the conventions of the P.I. archetype were. Um, so when I started, so I had those sort of in my bucket of tools to use. Um, but I was also aware that I wanted to sort of expand on that a little bit. I didn't want her to be just Sam Spade in a dress, although you could sort of describe her in that way. But I wanted her to sort of have another level, another dimension. Um, she is female. Um, she is African-American. All right. So she's not going to see the world as Sam Spade saw it. And she's not going to sort of live in this sort of limited space uh, where so, sort of Sam Spade and Marlowe and all the other ones sort of uh, navigated. I wanted her to be sort of rounded. So I had the conventions of the PI thing. I also know that I wanted to invent a little other something special about her. Um, of course, I'm not the one who sort of, you know, invented the wheel on this. I mean, we've got this sort of great rush of uh, wonderful female crime writers around the, the first part of the 80s, uh, Paretsky and Grafton and all of those. So um, they sort of had those characters. Uh, they filled them out as, as best they could. And I wanted to do the same with my character, to add a little something to her that the others maybe didn't have or that I didn't see anywhere else. So that was my... Uh, focus uh, when I started out. Um, I've given her a great deal of flaws and things that she doesn't see that like everybody else sees. Uh, she sort of zigs when other people zag. And uh, I like that about her. I like the fact that um, she's got this job that's unconventional, but she's sort of got this conventional home life and uh, personal life that she has to struggle with and sort of balance between the, the other things. So um, yeah, I tried to flesh her out, um, give her something special that was just for her and me. And uh, I think I did pretty well. I think our readers seem to enjoy her and like her and sort of root for her when she's on the right side and sort of uh, admonish her for sort of doing things difficultly. And so it's good. It's good to have that. Well, Tracy, your fiction is set in present day Chicago, which is a great city for mysteries and many things. And I'm, I, I love that description of hers. Uh, she's not your main character is not Sam Spade in a dress. And so I'm very curious, who, who are your modern day uh, crime novelist inspirations or mentors? Well, um, in terms of personal mentors, Eleanor Taylor Bland was my mentor. Um, she sort of caught me right at the point where I sort of decided that I was going to actually give this writing business 
a shot. Up until that point, I was just sort of fooling around, uh, writing in my notebook, uh, having little pieces of stories, uh, knowing that I wanted to write, but having absolutely no idea how to sort of start and, and sort of sit down and buckle down and get it done. And she found me at one of uh, writer conferences that I went to uh, while I was still in college. I would sort of shuffle myself up there on a Saturday morning at nine o'clock and it would go all day until five. And you would sort of go through panel to panel and pacing and character description and setting and all that. And Eleanor was the only sort of other person of color that I sort of found. You sort of go into places like that and sort of look for your people. And she was the person that I saw. And she was kind enough and uh, really personable enough to sort of grab me, uh, look at my stuff, say it was good, and then sort of follow me through to sort of make sure that I actually kept writing. So that was my mentor. And I uh, have great respect and admiration for her and miss her every day. Um, but, you know, all of those uh, female crime writers that I mentioned before, Peretsky and Grafton and Muller and Marin and all of those, uh, those were my inspiration, I think. Because when I got to the point where I'm going to do it, I'm going to write this book, uh, I have this character in my head, now I have to figure out how it how to do it, how it happens. So I read uh, all of those series, uh, Peretsky and, and Marin and all of them, and read them uh, cover to cover. I read them every year as they came out. And you just sort of study them and uh, see what works for them and how I can sort of make it work for me. Um, it took a lot of years to sort of teach myself how to write a complete story. Uh, it's not an easy thing to do, um, but you have to sort of find a way to sort of teach yourself all of those skills and those and use all of those tools and put the story together. So, um, yeah, it, it was, took a while. Uh, I think it was probably 20 some years of struggling and sort of trying to teach myself to write and starting over and tearing things apart and putting them back together again before my book sold. Uh, and I had torn that book up, that first book, maybe five or 10 times before it actually got to a final phase. So it took quite a while. Uh, I'm still learning. Um, I think all writers are still learning, even if you sort of get into that point where you can sort of, that's the top of the mountain, you're published, you're great. Um, you're still learning every day. So every book is different. Uh, every challenge and every book is different. And you have to approach it in a different way each time. Well, and Tracy, with genre fiction, there's this seeming expectation that you write a book a year and you're clearly on track for that at the moment. And you just mentioned you've been writing for, it sounds like, nearly or two decades. Uh, so I'm curious about this process of learning that you're talking about and the difference between learning when you're pre-published and then learning once you have some books in the can and now you have four and you're working on another one. So what have you learned about your genre in writing a book a year? Well, I've learned uh, fundamentally that it's a business and they don't care whether or not you don't feel like writing <laughs> on a particular day. <laughs> um, the deadline is the deadline and that book has to be in there when they need it. What's surprising to me as I finished the first book and marked on the second was that it doesn't get any easier. You would think that once you've got one under your belt, that the second one is going to be a snap. You know how to do it. You've been there. No, it's not any easier. Uh, second book is just as difficult as the first. Third is just as difficult as the second. And the fourth one wasn't any easier than any other one. So it's just the process. And you have to sort of teach yourself to sort of get in that rhythm. This is your job. 
this is what you need to do. And this book has to be written by this date. And whatever you have to do, I don't know if you have to take uh, bubble baths at night or prop yourself on, on the pillows when you, when you write. Whatever you have to do, whatever your thing is, you have to get it done. And I think sort of coming from a journalism background when the deadline was the thing where you couldn't miss it or there else there was going to be a hole in the newspaper, you sort of teach yourself to sort of get in that rhythm and get in that sort of vibe and you just get it done. I love it, Tracy, coming from uh, a, an organization that focuses on a goal and a deadline, NaNoWriMo. So yeah. it's all about that deadline. We call it a creative midwife. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Well, hey, you know, you mentioned uh, writing is a business. And so beyond the, the, the writing process that's part of that business, um, I, was, I was checking out your titles online, and it looks like your books are hardcovers, audiobooks, and ebooks. And I'm hoping you can shed light on this because I'm curious about how crime fiction is positioned and how readers consume your books. So first, I was wondering, are there paperbacks that just aren't showing up on Amazon? And second, is it the case that genre fiction writers tend to sell more ebooks? Because I've heard that's the case. Um, I don't know what the numbers are. My feeling is that ebooks probably sell a lot better than the hardbacks because they're easier to sort of uh, digest and sort of deal with, right? Mm-hmm. You don't have to carry this big behemoth of a thing around with you in your bag when you can sort of have a Kindle with 17 million books on it. So uh, that's just my feeling. I don't uh, know the numbers to sort of back that up. But what I've heard from readers is that Audible and ebooks and stuff like that more easily to consume, uh, easier to carry. That's what they go for, which is fine with me. Um, I don't care how they read it, uh, whatever format works for them, uh, as long as they sort of enjoy the books and uh, come back for the other. Uh, Well, I want to go back to what you were talking about before, because it it struck me, I had watched a few other interviews with you. And then I, you know, I, I hear this tone that you have, you know, it's almost um, like this very matter of fact way of thinking about your writing, you know, and listening to you, there's a way in which it almost sounds that you're unforgiving of yourself. I mean, I, 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 I don't mean that in a bad way. I mean, like you're very deadline driven, you're hard on yourself. I'm imagining like to the point that you kind of remind me of a professional athlete when you speak about your writing. And so I wondered if there's something in your background. I mean, I know you mentioned that you're, uh, you work in journalism or you work in the newspaper business. So obviously there's that, but it, it does feel sort of like a natural disposition. And I wonder if you could speak to your own character in terms of this sort of hard driving deadline aspect that you have. Well, um, I think personally, uh, I'm a sort of a driven kind of a person, um, especially when there are things that I sort of uh, find important and uh, like, like writing. Um, I always knew that this is what I wanted to do, even when I was a little kid. It was just a matter of finding a way to teach myself how to write uh, and get to the next phase and sort of have that dream come true of actually being published and seeing your name on a book. I'm also very stubborn uh, personally. So when all those rejection letters started coming in and I was still writing and struggling and trying to teach myself what I didn't know, um, I just sort of piled those things up in a little pile, like kind of like with a spike, and I would just keep going. Um, some people uh, maybe don't have that. Maybe they sort of see those rejection letters come in and they're dejected and they stop and whatever. It was sort of a, an impetus for me every time I got one, a little discouraging when you, when you open that envelope. you know. But then, of course, uh, you have an option. You have, can either keep going or you can stop. And I always kept going. 
I think perseverance is my main thing uh, besides sort of having that sort of modicum of talent to sort of put these stories together. Just knowing that this is something I wanted. Uh, this is the kind of personality that I am. I'm a little introverted and shy when I sort of meet people, but there's a drive there. Uh, there's a fire there. Uh, these books are important to me. Uh, these characters are important to me. And it just becomes a thing of sort of pushing yourself forward, despite how difficult it is. And some days are better than others. Some days you sort of whip through 5,000 words and you're feeling on top of the world. You come back to it the next morning and you've got 20 words on the page. And that's as far as you can go. You know, so there's no rhyme or reason to it. It's just sort of pulling yourself out of this ditch every single day and getting to the end of it. It's kind of like a race, a marathon, and you can either stop at uh, mile 13 and drink some water, or you can keep going. And uh, I prefer to sort of keep going until I actually get to the whole 26 down. I love your mindset, Tracy. It's great listening to you. You're very inspirational. And I'm curious, because uh, speaking of another component of the successful writer mindset, um, it's balancing work and writing. And you're an editor, and I know a lot of editors who work with words all day long, and then they really struggle to prioritize their own writing as a result. But you seem not to suffer from that problem. So I'm curious, how has your work as an editor influenced your writing? Mm, well, I'm pretty good at the grammar. I know where the commas go. Um, that's pretty good to know. Um, you can do half of your editor's or my editor's work before it actually gets there. I think they appreciate that. But just in terms of regimentation, it just sort of has that schedule where you can sort of flip the switch. And that's kind of what I do every day. I write first thing in the morning. I do my two and a half hours of writing because that's my time. And then once that time is up, I sort of switch that thing in my head that says now that time is over. And now I have to switch over to the day job. And I do that with the same uh, passion and ferocity as I sort of approach the writing. Um, that's just the way I have to do it. Um, I'm still working. Uh, the books still have to be finished by the deadline. And all of those things have a time and a ticking clock on them. And it's just a matter of sort of swiveling between the two to get it all done. Um, some days are, again, are easier than others. Uh, same days, I really sort of win the race and everything is cool. And the next day, uh, I'm behind the eight ball. But, you know, that's life. That's what happens with everything. Yeah, so true. And uh, well, in closing, Tracy, I wanted to ask you about crime writers of color. I listed off all those things in the bio. You're really involved in different organizations. You told us before we started, like you joined everything. But this obviously is a broader community that supports you. So I, I'd love to hear about your involvement, uh, you know, and it's particularly I'm interested in crime writers of color just because of that association. And, and it gets a lot of attention in the world. And it seems like more and more so. So uh, Kensington in particular, I know who's your publisher, is is publishing a lot of series by writers of color. Um, and, and then with that in mind, if you could also tell us what you're working on next, that would be great. Well, uh, sure. Um, Crime Writers of Color is a group of professional writers, uh, newbies, uh, people just starting out, those who have published several books. Uh, we run the gamut, uh, but we're all writers of color and we have sort of... Uh, this group has sort of uh, grown up from a, a discussion that I think uh, their founder, our founders had in a bar somewhere, uh, Kelly Garrett, uh, Walter Mosley, Gigi Pondian. And they had this idea that they would sort of create a group for writers of color to sort of get together, uh, share advice, tips, uh, support, commiseration, um, you know, 
publishing business is not an easy business to be in. And I think writers of color have a particularly difficult, more difficult time of sort of getting published and getting through and uh, getting the access and the exposure that uh, other writers might get, you know, so we sort of bonded together and uh, we sort of fight the good fight. Uh, We uh, congratulate people as they sort of get to that point of getting published and uh, we commiserate with those who are sort of still getting those rejection letters in, you know, but we're bonded together and we're going to get this fight together. Uh, we've got uh, over, I think, I think maybe over 300 people now in the group at this point. So we're growing uh, leaps and bounds every day. And uh, we're just there for support and uh, commiseration and uh, to sort of buck each other up uh, as things go you know, in terms of the publishing business and, and how we do in it. Um, but yeah, I'm glad to be in it. Uh, I think we're doing great work. Uh, we're sticking together and uh, it's kind of like a family at this point, which is kind of cool. That is really amazing. Yeah, I, as I said, I just have heard great things coming out of it, and obviously have some some high profile founders. And mm-hmm. uh, well, and to end on, because I think that you've said you're writing a standalone book and not the next book in the series. Is that right? Yep, I'm writing my first standalone, which is a challenge in and of itself. Uh, it's different from the series characters because I've sort of been living with those characters for quite a long time. And now I'm sort of switching over to new characters with new problems and new backstories and new issues. Uh, It's difficult, I think, for me to sort of make that change because, uh, you know, just it's like like sort of joining a new family when you've sort of been used to the the family you came from. So new family of people, uh, new stories still set in Chicago because course, that's my city. That's what I know best. Um, But it's sort of an interesting exercise in terms of teaching myself to sort of write third person as opposed to first, Um, not having that sort of ongoing voice in my head of Cass Reigns, but somebody different and exploring that different person's character and flaws and life story. So um, I'm just finishing up the first draft of Hyde, which is the name of the first standalone Um, that will come out in December of 2022. And I have uh, pretty good hopes for it. I think it's going to be pretty good once I actually get to the finish line. Thanks so much, Tracy. Best of luck with that. I look forward to reading it. Yeah, so happy to have you with us today, Tracy. Thanks. Thanks for having me. We will be right back with today's book talk. For today's book pick, I'm going to go back to Aya de Leon, who I mentioned at the beginning of the show, who is a friend of ours and a former guest uh, whose episode we hope that you'll go and check out in the archives. And she's the author of this heist series called Justice Hustlers series. And I wanted to give Aya a nod because of what we were talking about earlier uh, about the genre wars. And she's really shaped how I think about genre fiction. She writes urban fiction. Uh, And she's written some critical thought pieces on crime reads that I really encourage you all to go out and take a look at if you're interested in this topic on genre fiction and the race and class associations that go along with it. Uh, She has also got the most subversive and feminist series that I have ever read. And she shares a, a publisher with Tracy, which is Kensington. And Aya writes mainly for young African American and Latina women. And in one of her crime reads pieces, which I wanted to share uh, what she wrote, it says, 
My goal is to have young black and brown women in the hood reading the same books as women in college, as well as activists, so-called professionals, academics, artists, and other poor and working class folks. So Aya is writing with the reader always in mind, and also I think importantly, with a trust that her reader isn't just fitting into some particular box. And that's kind of the subversive part and why I think these publishing boxes need to be blown up a little bit. Uh, and I love this part too. I just want to read one more thing from Aya. Yes, I hit all the tropes, but many of us in genre fiction are working hard as writers, not just to include tropes, but to play with, subvert, and complicate tropes. So also very cool. And I just give Aya a lot of credit for thinking about this space, uh, helping to elevate the genre for what it is, which is the real world. <laughs> you know, it's the conversations we're having with friends. It's the show that we don't want to miss because it's hitting all the right notes uh, that's resonant with our lives and all the things that we're thinking about. And I think that this is why genre fiction readers are such rabid consumers. You know, they've got an appetite for fiction. And once they're hooked on a protagonist, they want more. So please check out Aya's series, the Justice Hustlers series. And it has four books so far, Uptown Thief, The Boss, The Accidental Mistress, and Side Chick Nation. Enjoy. Yeah, and I can't remember if you mentioned this, Brooke, but uh, Aya has been on Right Minded, so uh, dig up that episode. She's also a NaNoWriMo writer. I think she 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 has a NaNoWriMo writing process that she writes all these books in, even if she doesn't do them during NaNoWriMo. So big fan of Aya. And we will be back next week and the week after that and the week after that. And the reason for that is because we are a weekly podcast. And you can download us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts, literally. So thank you so much for listening. We appreciate you so much.